stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. I am asking you to take down the blockades. Protest peacefully and legally. But it's time to remove the barricades and the trucks for the sake of the economy and because it's the right thing to do. Well, good afternoon, folks. That was interim leader Candace Bergen in the House of Commons today. And a little bit of a change, I think, in their tone and their approach, calling on these protests to end. We are coming up on two weeks of this protest in the nation's capital. We're at about, what, day five now of this blockade in Windsor. Uh, that has choked off commercial traffic across Canada's busiest border crossing with the United States. And there is that question, when and how does this all end? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if anybody really truly knows the answer to that, but it is certainly possible that this all ends very badly. So what do we need to know about all of this? What is it that's sustaining these protests? What do we need to know about them? Well, our next guest uh, ventured into the uh, protest crowds in Ottawa over the last few days and wrote a few dispatches, which you can read at The Line, theline.substack.com. Uh, but it was his third, his most recent, I guess, that's maybe getting the most attention and maybe has the most ominous tone to it, that we could be in for some real trouble here. Matt Gurney is a columnist for the National Post and contributor at The Line, as mentioned, theline.substack.com. Matt, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. It is good to be here, and I desperately wish we had anything else to talk about. How about Tippett getting fired? How about Ducharme getting fired? Let's talk some <laughs> hockey. We certainly could. Uh, unfortunately, Matt, we got ourselves uh, a bit of a problem potentially brewing in the nation's capital. And I guess we'll, we'll get to that, but I just want to sort of take a step back. You decided you were going to go see it all for yourself, go down, see these protests, talk to these protesters. So you spent, what, a uh, couple days there? Yeah, I spent a couple of days there. I left on Sunday um, from home in Toronto. I arrived early Monday morning. I spent all day Monday there, spent all day uh, Tuesday there, and I got back um, uh, early Wednesday to home in Toronto. So my first dispatch was published uh, Monday after my first day there. My second dispatch was published uh, on Tuesday after my second day there. And my third dispatch was published Monday. It was uh, partially written uh, in Ottawa on the road. Uh, then I finished it up in Toronto and got it out last night. Uh, yeah, I described what I've been seeing in Ottawa. And, and Rob, obviously we have we have a few minutes here together, and I'm happy to tell you about what I saw. But it's just worth noting that whatever I saw in Ottawa, the events are moving incredibly quickly. We now have yeah. at least, what, three borders uh, control points that are blockaded here. This situation is getting bad, and it was already bad when I left. It is. And look, you, I mean, you were in Ottawa, obviously. You haven't been in Windsor. You haven't been here in Alberta in Coots. But what's your sense of how coordinated this all is? Do you think the people in, in Ottawa would say the same thing as the people in Coots or the people in Windsor? Is there, are there, there certainly seems to be some common threads here between all these folks. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a great sense of the degree of coordination between the various sites. Um, my interpretation, and, and this is based on my own reading, my own interviews with, with sources, and also just my own observations, I do think this protest is um, largely organic. I think people are frustrated. I think they're mad. Every opinion poll we've had for months has shown that there's a growing uh, number of Canadians who are just absolutely furious with the situation this country's in. 
And I think with modern communication tools, it's not hard for those people to uh, get organized, to get mobilized. Um, I, I would have no doubt whatsoever that there are um, people manipulating this, this emotion, co- manipulating the communications and uh, trying to influence them. But I don't think that's the big issue here. I think more or less people are furious and they are, you know, they're acting out. And I, I do think that is a very real thing right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, we certainly saw crowds in the thousands on, on the previous two Saturdays, but wh- yeah. what do we see in between? Like, as you're wandering around Ottawa, any sense of, of how many people that are there that we would consider a, a part of this movement or this protest? Um, you know, it, it's the most, the thing I walked away with from Ottawa believing more than anything else is that if there's one thing you and everyone who has not had a chance to eyeball yourself needs to understand, it is very complicated. And what I mean yeah. by that is that you have multiple protest sites in Ottawa. Uh, you have multiple groups represented in those sites. You have tourists uh, showing up. You have people like me showing up and just mm-hmm. wandering around, right? Like it's, it's a very confusing situation, but let me try to break it down to you as best I can. There are, um, like I said, grassroots, frustrated, angry people in, uh, in, in Toronto who are, sorry, in Ottawa, I should say, who are very frustrated and they're there because uh, they're angry and they want to be heard. There are some people there who are just outright conspiracy theorists, cranks. There are people there who are looking to topple the government or Justin Trudeau. And at some of those outside sites, away from Parliament, as I described in my third dispatch, I drove to a baseball stadium that's been uh, taken over as one of the sites. Um, And when I went there, I found that instead of a bunch of trucks in a parking lot, they had arranged the trucks to form a barrier. They had reinforced the barrier with bales of hay, with wooden sawhorses. It was stacked pallets, wooden pallets. Um, There was an entrance that had a tent marked reception that you could only get into the main compound by passing through it. And when I tried to approach that tent, I was very quickly um, met by people who were sort of roaming the site. And I had the distinct impression that they would really prefer it if I left. So that group was organized, disciplined, and uh, apparently quite well-equipped. I've seen some drone footage taken of the site. There are different groups, Rob, engaged in in these protests. Uh, I I think we we would be putting ourselves in danger if we tried to pretend that there's one coordinating body here and this is a really simple situation. It's not. And I think that partially explains why our governments have been stunned into complete inaction. Right. And I mean, maybe there's there's a hope, perhaps a naive hope, but a hope that, you know, that some of these folks in Ottawa are just going to get bored and and they're going to go home. Maybe some light enforcement, some ticketing and some finger wagging might might, you know, send some of them uh, away as well. But it's pretty clear, Matt, we've got some some folks there that are that are digging in and they're digging in for something much more prolonged and potentially much more serious. Uh, the one thing you noted in, in your piece, which is interesting, is that maybe Ottawa's police chief, more than anybody, uh, in terms of public figures, seems to understand this. And he's basically been telegraphing his concerns uh, for anyone willing to listen. What What is this all building to? Do you fear, or at least some of the sources you're hearing from fear? 
Um, I was looking around um, even before I got to Ottawa. I've been watching to see the response of various officials. And the only one who seems to be actually caught up with the present is uh, Peter Slowly, the chief of the Ottawa police. I think Slowly's career is probably ruined. Um, I, I, I don't see how he possibly comes out of this. I think this has been a catastrophe for him and his force and his reputation. Yeah. But that being said, whatever he mis- whatever mistakes he made at the outset, I think he was the first one to realize what he was really up against here. And I think a lot of our politicians, Rob, are trained to view the way the world in ways that they understand, right, and that they can understand uh, how they are viewing this by the benefits of prior experience. What is happening with these protests is is not idle no more. It is not a particularly loud and rambunctious anti-abortion protest. We are not dealing with Greenpeace opposing a pipeline. We are dealing with something else here. There are layers of traditional protest activity as a part of it. There are people who are behaving in ways in line with traditional protests. But this is something else, something we're not familiar with. And I think Chief Slowly was the first person to admit that. And I think he's waiting for provincial and federal leadership to catch up with him. One thing, Rob, I will say, in the last few minutes, I think while I was waiting on hold for your your excellent team in the booth there to connect me, the federal government has announced it will be sending reinforcements to the border points, which I imagine is a preparatory step to taking action. So maybe the federal government's starting to get its head in the game, but it's about two weeks too late. Yeah, it, it, it seems that way. And I mean, obviously, and we've talked before about this whole situation that, you know, for whatever reason, our, our political leadership uh, didn't foresee what might be coming. They allowed themselves to be completely caught off guard by all of this. And, and you know, look, in, in fairness, you know, the, a lot of this is, is kind of unprecedented. But is there a happy ending here, Matt? Is there a calm and peaceful or even just a boring resolution to all of this? There are things we can do. Um, There are things we can do, and I think I am... uh, It's funny, my column tomorrow is going to actually be about this, Rob, where there have been things I have been specifically waiting to see the government to do, and I didn't want to start talking about them in public, but because there were things that they were going to do that I knew was inevitable, and I was wondering what the hell was taking them so long. So let me give you a couple of examples. It took Ottawa 10 days to get around to declaring a state of emergency, What the hell took so long? It was a private citizen who went to court to get an injunction against the use of air horns. Mm -hmm. What the hell took the government so long? Um, The police in Ottawa have now been very clearly putting out the message that anyone who continues to be part of these illegal activities will be subject to arrest. Their trucks will be seized as instruments of crime. Their insurance policies will be suspended. And they may no longer be able to cross the U.S. border once they've been charged with a crime. That's a degree of psychological persuasion that seemed to take them about 13 days to figure out to do it. And the fact that we're only starting to see enforcement action ramping up in uh, parts of the city now, it, it just leaves me absolutely baffled. I think... We collectively lost about nine or ten days uh, or even longer sitting around trying to convince ourselves that this was really happening before we bothered starting to get to work to fix it. 
As mentioned, your dispatches are up at the line, theline.substack.com. Matt, uh, appreciate it, and uh, we'll see what unfolds in the coming days here. Yes, sir. Good luck to you. All the best. There you go, Matt Gurney, uh, columnist with the National Post, contributor at The Line, theline.substack.com. And so some really interesting pieces he wrote this week. And again, and he went in and, and, you know, he talked to folks. He talked to some of the protesters there to get a sense of who they were, why they were there, you know, what, what they're waiting for, hoping for, when or how they might leave. And, you know, there, there are a lot of folks that are there for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, even amongst the crowds in Ottawa, as he says, you can identify certain groups. Uh, and there are some that the authorities there are more concerned about than others. So this one encampment in this park, it's uh, known as RCGT Park, right next to a hotel, not all that far from Parliament. There's something really different going on there. And it seems to be what the police chief in Ottawa is most concerned about. So if there were those who were digging in for something longer, something more serious, how do you deal with that? So our federal leadership, provincial in Ontario, local leadership, everybody's kind of playing catch up here uh, to try to figure out what it is we're dealing with and then how to deal with it. And as we see across the country, even here in Alberta, uh, you know, this continues to spread and continues to spiral somewhat out of control, you might argue. So we've got Canada's largest border crossing choked off. Other border crossings blocked as well. So how does this all end? Well, of course, with the announcement this week, uh, Alberta students, K-12 students who've been in school since uh, early January, uh, will no longer have to wear masks as of Monday. But for post-secondary learning in Alberta, uh, that hasn't resumed in person yet. It has remained online, expected to resume then by the end of the month. Yesterday, Alberta's advanced education minister sent a letter to the post-secondary institution board chairs, reminding them of the changes set to take effect on March 1st. And making it clear that the expectation is that these institutions will align their policies with the government, meaning a return to in-person learning without masking and without proof of vaccination requirements. Now, today, the University of Calgary said uh, that they will continue with masking through to the end of this winter term. In part, they say because of guarantees of masking requirements, uh, guarantees that were made to students when they enrolled for in-person classes. So joining us to talk about uh, the situation around the return to learning in post-secondary institutions is Alberta's Minister of Advanced Education, Demetrius Nikolaitis, joining us this afternoon. Minister, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, so the letter, talk about why you felt there was a need to to make all of this clear to post-secondary institutions and, and what you hope it will accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, there's a couple of reasons. I think first and foremost, uh, I think it's uh, incumbent upon me as, as minister to uh, ensure that there are strong open lines of communication with our institutions, that they have a clear understanding of what the recent changes are that government has announced and, um, and how it affects their particular institution um, as well. It's also my responsibility as, as minister uh, to, to outline um, individual expectations and, and, and how um, uh, how institutions uh, should, uh, should should manage uh, certain elements of, of their affairs. Of course, that that the specifics of that is up to the individual boards of governors. But I think it's important to help set some some high level uh, guidelines uh, as it relates to the, the the removal of restrictions during this time. I think it's important that we do see do see some some alignment across government agencies and, and commissions. But most importantly of all, I think it's um, it, it's necessary to to have this letter so that. Our institutions and our students can have some predictability about what uh, what the future will look like and, and can begin to make 
uh, accurate plans and preparations for that. Well, and fair enough, and I, maybe that's what the University of Calgary is doing today, so saying that masking will remain in place through the end of the semester, so your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I think, you know, that, uh, again, each each individual Board of Governors uh, has to look at their, their dynamic, their situation, their campus, their students, and uh, make the decisions that are, are best for their individual institutions, and yeah, I'm sure this is a this is a period of transition. So, you know, I'm 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 happy to work with all of our post-secondary institutions as we navigate through these these waters. Um, uh, you know, we we have to of course uh, watch very closely what's happening with COVID with respect to cases and hospitalizations uh, to ensure that we're uh, we are in a position to be able to remove masks and other measures on March 1st as was stipulated. Uh, so, happy to to stay connected with them as as we work through this this very fluid uh, period. Right. Well, the letter seems to uh, ascribe much more certainty to the March 1st days that they, than maybe was announced this week. I mean, March 1st is, as I understand it from the Premier's announcement, contingent on certain trends in hospitalization. So, I mean, how, how much stock can we put in the March 1st date at this point? Yeah, well, as you said, it, it depends on, on what's happening with um, case levels and, and primarily what's happening with hospitalization um, levels. Of course, we, you know, we are starting to see those hospitalization levels plateau. And, and what we've seen throughout the course of the pandemic is there's usually about, a, you know, a two to three week lag. If hospitalization, excuse me, if cases increase, we start to see hospitalizations increase a few weeks after that. If they decrease, we start to see hospitalizations decrease. Uh, a few weeks after that. So uh, we, we anticipate that trend to, to continue. But indeed, uh, we have to monitor the um, hospitalizations very carefully uh, before we're able to really proceed with uh, with stage two. I wonder if you could talk about why we, we don't have in-person learning at the moment, because it feels like this is quite a shift to go from no in-person lear- learning at all to all of a sudden go to complete in-person learning with no restrictions in place uh, or, or measures in place, at least as, as laid out in this letter. So wh- why aren't students there now? Yeah, well, I mean, not entirely. Um, I think it's important to remember that uh, um, this past fall semester, which began in September, was largely in person. Uh, The vast majority of our institutions were delivering classes in person this September and October. Um, uh, And, and of course, there there were uh, masking requirements and vaccination requirements. I think, you know, on the vaccination requirements, as the Premier mentioned, uh, similar to the restriction exemption program, the, the real purpose behind those was to help boost vaccination rates. And now with 90% of Albertans 12 and over with the first dose, and I think those rates are actually uh, higher for post-secondary faculty and staff. I think those programs have, have really been effective. Of course, we saw our institutions uh, move to, to online learning uh, as the Omicron, the, the new Omicron variant uh, started to spread, which which I think was uh, prudent. We, we we were still trying to learn a lot uh, from a public health standpoint about what Omicron meant and, and how it would interact. So I think for an element of, of public safety and the safety of their students and staff on, on campus, many of our institutions made the, the decision. Some didn't. Uh, some decided to move online. Um, but now we know a lot more about Omicron. Cases are, are declining, keeping a close eye on hospitalizations as well. And I think that uh, with with those changes, it warrants us to examine our policies, uh, not just as government, but as post-secondary institutions, and to explore whether those uh, policies are needed, uh, are effective, and find ways to move forward. So is it the expectation, though, that, that regardless of the status of stage two, that, that in-person learning in some form resume by the 1st of March? 
Well, I, uh, as I mentioned in the letter, I think it's important for, for our institutions to, uh, to to align their policies with, with the government policy. So I think we have to continue to watch closely the uh, COVID hospitalization uh, numbers um, and, and, and see what happens. Of course, uh, health and safety is, is um, uh, the number one priority uh, and ensuring that uh, there's not uh, additional pressure on our medical system. So uh, I think it's, it's important that we watch carefully what's happening with the hospital numbers, what's happening with uh, a government response. And, you know, there, there may need to be course corrections and adjustment along this process, and that's totally fine, and we'll, uh, we'll tackle those together. So we mentioned the University of Calgary's announcement today. I mean, to, to what extent are you prepared to, to respect the decisions made by institutions? What would be a, a line for you in terms then of maybe some repercussions from, from your department? Yeah, I, I don't think we need to get into uh, an environment where, where we're looking at that type of thing. You know, we, um, I, I feel very fortunate to, to be able to work very collaboratively with all of our post-secondary institutions over the past uh, three years. Um, at the end of the day, as I mentioned, the, the Board of Governors has the legislative authority to determine and man- to, to manage the operations of their institutions. So it, it's ultimately up to them. Uh, again, I think it, it would be helpful to see uh, all agencies uh, of government, including our post-secondary institutions, ultimately aligned with government policy at the end of the day. Uh, again, it may take us some time to get there. There, there may be some twists and turns and, and uh, road bumps that we have to deal with, but I'm, I'm confident we can we can deal with those together. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Minister, appreciate making some time for us here today. Thanks for the update. Of course, anytime. All the best. All the best. Uh, Demetrius Nicolaitis, Alberta's Minister of Advanced Education. So talking about uh, their expectations for the return to in-person learning, which I, I guess for the most part will will be around March 1st. You got the reading week break right before that anyway. Uh, so it does seem a little odd. And, and, you know, maybe there are other reasons why in-person learning hasn't yet resumed. But, you, you know, kind of going from, from zero to 100 in the span of, uh, of days. Right, that it's not safe now for in-person learning, but come March 1st, it'll be so safe that we won't need any distancing, any masks, anything. Maybe that's an oversimplification. Anyway, uh, as it says in the letter, post-secondary institutions will have the full ability to return to pre-pandemic delivery without the need to enforce physical distancing, proof of vaccination, and masking effective March 1st. It is my expectation that all of Alberta's universities, colleges, and polytechnics will align their COVID-19 policies and practices with the uh, with that of Alberta's government. Like you, I'm eager to see students returning to in-person learning without masking and proof of vaccination requirements this March. To the University of Calgary today. Uh, It says, subject to realized declines in the uh, number of COVID-19 hospitalizations, the province is removing the general public requirement to mask indoors as of March 1st. To remain consistent with this government policy, while reflecting that many students have enrolled in in in-person classes for the winter term in part because of guarantees of masking requirements, masking remains required until the end of the winter term. At that time, masking will become optional at the University of Calgary. It is important to note that as of today, the city of Calgary still maintains a mask bylaw. Should that bylaw remain in effect after April 12, students, faculty, and staff would still be required to wear masks while indoors in facilities located within the city of Calgary. So that from the U of C today. Now, part of the announcement this week from the premier was that masking would no longer be required in schools as of Monday. Now, it's just barely a month ago 
that the Alberta government uh, made masking a central part of the safe return to schools, that masking would be part of what would keep schools safe. And to that end, uh, they ordered and spent millions on millions of masks. In fact, some of those masks are, are just arriving this week at schools. So it's it, it does seem like an abrupt policy change. But look, fair enough. I mean, it's it's their call to make. It's interesting, though, the, the way they are going after those who are holding the opinion that the Alberta government previously did. The Alberta Teachers Association has raised some concerns about this plan uh, that prompted the premier to lash out uh, on Twitter this week, saying it was disturbing to see that the teachers union thinks unmasked kids creates an unsafe workplace. Now, is is this maybe looking for a, a political fight with uh, an old uh, political foe? I don't know. I'm not sure what's behind that. Uh, maybe our next guest has some clear idea. Jason Schilling is president of the Alberta Teachers uh, Association, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Jason, welcome to the program. Uh, good afternoon, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so your your thoughts, uh, first of all, on, on the announcement and I guess the, the tone you've you've seen from the premier and the education minister just in the last day or so here. Well, you know, when we saw the announcement, we we all want to return to a normal school setting. I mean, we we are all tired of the pandemic and um, the way that it's affected our, our personal and professional lives, and especially how we we've seen it, um, you know, with protocols at schools. But we did want to make sure that we're not entering into a hasty decision on um, some of the protocols and the easing of these protocols in such a quick fashion, because what we don't want to see happen is regress back into or fall back into um, what we had in the fall or last year with this roller coaster in and out of, of schools and the impacts that we saw with the waves on schools. So we were just urging some caution about uh, the hastiness and the speed of which uh, it seemed the decision came to us the other day. Now, regarding the, the masks, by the way, and I've, I've heard anecdotally from some parents and some teachers even that some of those masks that the province spent millions on are actually uh, arriving still this week at schools. Is that true? Yeah, I've talked to a couple individuals that I know that their mask, um, it's been hit or miss actually since we came back on January 10th and whether schools would have the mask or the rapid test, they came in sort of waves and uh, some had just received them as, as like yesterday. A 250 pounds worth of mass showed up at uh, at their school. Which is, I don't, it's an interesting shift, isn't it? I mean, obviously, I think we're in a better situation than we were a month ago, but it wasn't that long ago that, you know, we had to delay the winter break. And, you know, the province said that this was going to be part of the way we would keep schools safe. Now, that that's uh, certainly changed, hasn't it? Well, I mean, we still have a lot of schools and uh, that are dealing with the uh, the fifth wave, with teachers who are having to isolate or becoming sick, or students who are are also in the same boat of isolating or becoming sick. So we're still dealing with that right now. Um, one of the things too that uh, you know, with the change that was coming, and it would have been nice to have been consulted with that, you know, knowing that uh, school boards and teachers have both indicated, both of the associations um, have indicated that they weren't consulted on this decision. And uh, these are the people who are working day in and day out with uh, students across the province. And having a consultation with them, I think, would have been a wise thing for government to do, just so that we knew what was going to happen, that we could ask questions. You know, when you get an announcement uh, that late in the afternoon about a, a big decision like this, um, there's always more questions that come after the fact. And we've not, and that is caused part of the, the stress as well. Is well, what about everybody asks us all the questions? Well, what about what about 
about what about? And when you don't know the answers because you weren't part of the conversation or weren't consulted, it's, it's hard to answer a lot of those questions. Now, part of what seemed to set the premier and the education minister off was the suggestion that the ATA might take some legal action here. And I think that was in a tweet from teachers, maybe uh, on the ATA executive. I'm, I'm not sure exactly. But can you clarify what the ATA's position is? is? Is legal action an option at this point? We never said we were going to do legal action. It's just a, a the conversation that was on Twitter, when we have issues that come up at the association, we always do our due diligence to to look at them. And so we will look at our policy. We will look at legislation. We'll look at all sorts of factors around that issue and then move forward with that. But at no point did we ever say that we were actually going to file um, a lawsuit. Okay. Well, what does this mean for your members, though? Because Teachers are still going to be required to to wear masks, even though students won't as of Monday. Maybe this certainly makes it a more pressing matter to to address the the quality of masks that teachers have access to, you know, N95s, for example. So where where does this leave teachers? What are the concerns about, you know, their own situation starting next week? Well, teachers have concerns, and they um, rightfully so. I mean, they want to make sure that we have been through this pandemic for two years, and they want to make sure that uh, they're safe, their students are safe, their families and their communities are safe. Um, adults in buildings still have to wear masks, and so uh, we've we've seen some boards and some uh, um, some of our ATA locals have gone ahead and purchased like KN95 masks for the adults who are working in those buildings, and so. We still have to see some more information coming from school boards who, again, were caught off guard with this and are still making up their plans um, and see what they have to say. And then we will we'll handle things as it comes along as we have throughout the entire pandemic. Now, it doesn't sound like school boards are going to have the option to implement their own masking policies, or at least that's that's the expectation from the education minister. What, what's your assessment of that? Well, I, I find that curious as well, because last fall, I mean, in, in this or I should back that up, the summer when we had a return to school plan, boards were given the accountability and the responsibility for COVID plans. And so some Mm -hmm. made masking plans, some did not. And all of a sudden that has been taken away. And uh, I'm just curious about uh, the reasoning behind that uh, quick shift on the autonomy of, you know, publicly elected school boards as well. Well, and I mean, yeah, it's already Thursday. This this starts Monday, so not a lot of time to, to sort all of this out. Well, that's really when we go back to what we said in our news release was our concerns around the quickness of this and that we, you know, we just urge government to proceed cautiously with this because we don't want to see ourselves, like I said, reverting back into, um, you know, having to be online or being in person and all of the things that we have been seeing. I mean, people are, are tired of the pandemic. We, we want to move ahead and, and teachers are no different than anybody else, but we just want to make sure that it's done in a way that doesn't make us fall back. All right. Well, Jason, appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for your input on this. You bet, Rob. Have a good afternoon. All the best. Jason Schilling is president of the Alberta Teachers Association. Uh, so the ATA's thoughts on uh, what this all means potentially going forward. We'll see how it uh, all plays out. But, yeah, this takes effect. I mean, Sunday as of midnight, that requirement is no longer there. So masking becomes optional in schools as of Monday. Anyway, you want to wait on that, 403-974-8255. We'll hear from the Alberta Hospitality Association coming up after 2.30. I think they were hoping to hear the plan for easing and ending restrictions, but maybe the way the province went about it has left them a little confused.
All right. Well, of course, uh, this week marks stage one of the Alberta government's plan to ease and eventually end restrictions. Obviously, first and foremost was the restriction exemption program. That's now gone. Uh, There are some capacity limits that are also gone for businesses, venues and facilities. Uh, But for restaurants in particular... And I guess for entertainment venues, everything that falls into that category, we've still got some restrictions in place. For example, restrictions on closing times, alcohol service, table capacity, and interactive activities all remain in force, presumably until March 1st. But I guess it depends if indeed we move to step two on March 1st. So I think for the hospitality industry, maybe some hope that that some of those damaging restrictions might have been the first to go which uh, wasn't the case. Joining us to talk a bit about uh, what this all means for now for the hospitality industry, Ernie Sue joins us. He's the owner of the Trolley 5 uh, Brewery and Restaurant and president of the Alberta Hospitality Association. Ernie, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me again, Rob. So let me just get your initial impressions of, of what was announced, what's been prioritized, and, and I guess what, uh, what changes still have to wait. Well, for uh, industry across the province, uh, stakeholders and owners, um, everybody's concern and focus was was hopefully to have the ability to operate at 100% freely uh, without any restrictions. Help us understand, maybe for people who aren't familiar with the, you know, the, the ins and outs of all of these restrictions, because obviously restaurants and, and bars are able to be open, but these, these restrictions do have a, a pretty real impact. What, what has it meant for, for your members and for your industry? Well, I mean, it's, it's meant everything. Uh, so many members and stakeholders across the province had sent letters in previous, you know, prior to the announcements, uh, talking about lost revenues, obviously layoffs, uh, peeling back of hours for our staff, and then of course the mental health breakdown of of what's happened since you know Christmas when uh, these restrictions went in. So, for example, so uh, alcohol service needs to end by a certain time. That's what, is it eleven That's o'clock? Correct, yeah. yeah, it's important. Uh, alcohol service still ends at eleven o'clock. Uh, tables must remain seated. Um, you know, when they're not at their table, they're supposed to still be wearing uh, their masks when they move throughout the building. So all restrictions are still in place except for the uh, REP program. And for things like, you know, dancing or even activities like billiards, that's still not allowed either? Still not allowed. No, not not as of yet. I mean, we, we did get word that uh, um, our VLP pubs should be able to operate as, as per normal again, hopefully. Okay. Um, you know, we're hoping that starts and uh, pool uh, halls can go back into effect as well right away, and then uh, we'll see what happens by March 1st. Uh, clearly, you, you've, you've you know, conveyed to the Alberta government you know, the impact of those kinds of restrictions, your desire to see them gone. Do you feel like maybe that, that fell on deaf ears, or why do you think we saw the changes laid out as they were? Well, I mean, there's 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 many reasons why I think we saw the changes laid out as they were. I mean, is it a political issue? I mean, that's not for us to answer yes or no. But sure. um, I mean, the provincial government right now has the measurable metrics coming off of the letters that have gone in, uh, and hopefully, we have a roundtable scheduled with Minister Schweitzer's team from Jobs, Economy, and Innovation, and then Alberta Health here in the next few days. As for the REP, uh, you know, the government made a decision to prioritize that, and, and they have their reasons for that. 
In terms of the impact on the industry, I, I don't know. My sense kind of anecdotally is it's maybe a little mixed. Some businesses are maybe happy to see it go. Others maybe wished it, it had stuck around a little bit longer. Do, does your association have a position one way or the other on that? Well, our, our association's position is we, we just ask the public to please be patient with, with every restaurant. This is another yeah. um, mandate that has been put through by the government, not by restaurants. So uh, whether you're in favour of the REP or not in favour of it, uh, this is a removal of the REP by the Alberta government. And more importantly, um, we don't know when the app will stop working, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if, if, if public's expectations are that a number of restaurants are going to try to keep the REP, which, we, you know, we support either way, it's their choice, um, the, the app may not be live by the end of the weekend. So um, we're hoping that... Mm-hmm public can have the patience there either way, whether they favor it or do not favor it. Now, looking forward, Ernie, I mean, you know, we're supposed to see some bigger changes happening as of March 1st. I think that date's contingent on, on some things happening. I mean, that's that's only a few weeks away, but, uh, I mean, is that is that too long a wait? Is there too much uncertainty as to whether it's, that's going to proceed as planned? It, it, it's, it's still far too late for our industry, and that's why those, those letters of the metrics went in uh, immediately was... Uh, there are restaurants or live music venues that are losing tens of thousands of dollars a week. Um, on the art side, we, you know, we, our musicians, our DJs are, you know, they're not able to play right now as well. So, um, yeah, March 1st is a long time away for businesses that are hemorrhaging money uh, that we're still trying to fight out of the last almost two years of this pandemic. And I guess March 1st is the best case scenario, right? And that's kind of the, the other maybe thing that's looming over all of this is that that could be pushed back potentially. Yeah, it can be pushed back revolving around hospitalizations. And um, that's what our, our huge ask was. Is there any possibility of, of government meeting with the doctors to try to apply a metric to those hospitalizations to have the ability to reopen back up at 100%? All right, we'll see how it all plays out in the weeks ahead. In the meantime, more at albertahospitalityassociation.ca. Ernie, thanks for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Rob. All right, all the best. Uh, Ernie Sue, owner of uh, Trolley 5 Restaurant and Brew Pub and uh, president of the Alberta Hospitality Association. And, yeah, I kind of get their frustration. I mean, that was basically what I wrote in, in my column this week is that, you know, the order the Alberta government's going in seems very political, like a very political response to these protests. As opposed to just saying, okay, which, which restrictions are having the most damaging impact right now? And let's start there. And some of these other ones could have been left to the last step. I don't know. Maybe that's, that's quibbling a little bit. Eventually, we're all going to end up at the same place anyway. But I think you can understand the frustration from the Hospitality Association that uh, you know, some of the rules they're stuck under aren't going away just yet. But off the top in this hour, an interesting new initiative uh, with regard to conservatives and environmental policy. I think one of the issues, um, and there were many, obviously, but one of the issues that, that Aaron O'Toole ran into and, and received certainly pushback from with his, in his own party was on the question of environmental policy. To still be able to stand up and criticize Justin Trudeau's carbon tax, but to also counter with something meaningful. Uh, to show Canadians that uh, conservatives do take environmental issues seriously, maybe with a different focus and a different approach, but that it is still a priority. Uh, To try to move that conversation along, there's a new group that's been launched. It's called Conservatives for Clean Growth. 
And it includes some pretty recognizable names. You might recall a fellow by the name of Jim Dinning, who was Alberta's treasurer under Ralph Klein. Lisa Raitt, former deputy leader of the Conservative Party cabinet minister. Uh, and our next guest, uh, Ken Bostoncool. Uh, one of the founders, he's a J.W. McConnell professor of practice at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University and a research fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute. Uh, Ken, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Always good to be here, Rob. So like I say, I think this is kind of a, an interesting initiative and in a way of moving this conversation forward amongst conservatives. What, why did you think that there was a need for something like this? What are you hoping this accomplishes? Well, I think I think that uh, we recognize, and by we I mean the people involved in this, and more names are coming in the coming days, we recognize that there's a tremendous opportunity for Canada in the global move to net zero. There's a tremendous opportunity for our mineral industry, our mining industry. Um, there's a tremendous opportunity that we're starting to see on manufacturing uh, electric cars. And all of these opportunities are there if we get our climate plan right and and I think that our message to the Conservative Party leadership candidates, because we're in a leadership, is that we are, as a group, we are ready and willing to stand by to help uh, any candidate develop a credible climate plan, because we think that's essential to take advantage of these enormous economic opportunities that we see ahead of us. What's your sense of why this issue has been so tricky for Conservatives? Well... I think there was a time in the past when you could frame this issue as being opposed to higher taxes versus, uh, versus you know, a low tax argument versus a high tax argument went up against doing something on the environment and not doing something on the environment. And I think the, 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 underlying, the, the underlying rationale at one point, I think you probably win and win the argument that high taxes over low taxes. But I think today, the voters that the Conservative Party needs to win a national election, certainly to get a majority government, will not vote for that Conservative Party if they don't believe it has a credible policy on climate change, because climate change is in the top three or four issues of all voters and Conservative voters and Conservative swing voters. And so we believe, uh, quite apart from taking, uh, taking advantage of those economic opportunities I just spoke of, we're not going to get into government if we don't get this right. And that's a that's a pretty important uh, important pretty important variable for us as conservatives for clean growth. Do you feel that there are still a lot of conservatives that need convincing? I, I think there are some, and I, I I don't know how many are. Yeah, you know, I couldn't quantify, but there are conservatives I think who just see this as a liberal issue, and and they would just as soon concede that ground to the liberals and focus on other issues. How do you convince conservatives that you know this is something they need to care about? Well, you listed a couple of my titles off the top, but I've been uh, a strategic advisor to a group called Clean Prosperity, and I think they've done a tremendous amount of polling that shows and has convinced us as conservatives for clean growth that you uh, you can believe what you want, um, but the people who are going to elect us to a national government believe we need a credible climate change policy. And so, again... We think the primary reason for doing so is to take advantage of the economic opportunities, but we think if we don't get that right, we also won't be forming government anytime soon. So I think there are two pretty strong reasons for conservatives to take this issue seriously. You know, I think there's there's concern certainly here in Alberta, in the West, uh, that that. And we, maybe we've seen it from from the liberals that, you know, environmental policy often comes at the expense of the oil and gas industry and, and concern that uh, too much of a focus on 
climate policy means that, that we ignore, overlook the concerns of the oil and gas industry. What kind of a balance needs to be struck there for conservatives to have a credible message and, and still be a, a strong voice for energy development? Look, I think there's two answers to that question. Number one is, last time I looked, most of the oil sands companies are part of a group to try and figure out how to get to net zero. And we're aligned with that desire and with their desire. The second point I'd say is if, if conservatives are going to yield that ground to the liberals, we shouldn't be surprised that the liberals do things that focus on their voting base uh, outside of Alberta instead of their voting base inside of Alberta. So it's just another argument for me for conservatives to get this right, to balance off the issues and you'll notice in our statement uh, as a group for for conservatives for clean growth we said we would help candidates develop a climate energy and economic policy and i think those three things can we can find a balance on those three things that's going to be different than what the liberals find and they they will put the balance away from energy we will put the balance toward energy and i think that's aligned with where most of the energy companies are in the province of alberta it's just if we're going to do this, if we're going to do this in a way that helps the the energy industry and is aligned with them, we probably are more likely to do it as conservatives. So let's get our let's get our act together and uh, and do that. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, I mean, we saw Aaron O'Toole attempt to to strike that balance. I, maybe he missed the mark or didn't go over well with with his own party. It's it's hard to say at this point. But obviously, we're now embarking on a leadership race. The conservatives are going to choose a new leader. Is is that part of the reason for the timing of of this launch? Is to you know, try to affect that conversation that's going to happen within the party? I, I, you know, I come back to the same thing I've been saying now for a few minutes, which is conservatives need to get this right if they want to form a national government. And we, uh, we as a group, as Conservatives for Clean Growth, thought it was important for there to be a voice in and around this leadership race, a voice of people who are longtime members, advisors, and uh, and cabinet ministers in this party to say, hey, we need to get this right. We need to we need to we need to make this part of the leadership discussion. And so we formed this group to do exactly that. You know, yesterday the caucus decided to punt this question to a leadership race, and so we're responding by saying, all right. You want to have that question punted to a leadership race? Here is our input, and I'm sure there will be other people with different input. And we think that this is a, this is a good way to have some creative tension within the party. Um, I like to say that in politics, there's a time to fight and a time to unite, and leadership races are a time for some internal fights. And uh, we've, we've put our collective stake in the ground and look forward to uh, having those debates uh, happen within the party and are hopeful that uh, we'll get a fair hearing as the, as the leadership race progresses. Much more conservatives for cleangrowth.ca. Ken, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time, Rob. All the best. Uh, Ken Boston Cool, one of the founders of Conservatives for, uh, conservatives for Clean Growth, uh, along with uh, Jim Dinning and Lisa Wright and uh, others to follow, he says, conservativesforcleangrowth.ca. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.